Matthew 27, verses 27 through 56. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, and saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those who were with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Good evening. How are y'all doing? I wanted to, to begin our, our message this afternoon or this evening with uh, words from Isaiah 52, verse 7, where Isaiah says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful picture. Man, that, that must be why they call it Good Friday, right? That's so, that's so beautiful. I mean, what that says to me is that God knows how to cheer up people who live under bad circumstances. He understands sinful people living out sinful patterns from one generation to the next. God gets us. 
us what we're like. He knows what, what you're dealing with. He knows what you're walking through. Even highly capable people like ourselves can come to realize that there are things, there are things beyond our control. Sometimes it even feels like an act of God is, is required to show us that, but we can, we can learn it. We can see that we're not in control. But I think what we're also learning is that weakness is fine soil for God to do some of his greatest work. Let's just watch him. Isaiah 52, 7, this verse that I just read is, is part of the backdrop leading up to this section that, that uh, Erica read for us earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53. And, and if you will, if you, if you need to, if it helps you, just, just close your eyes for a moment and just, just imagine this scene that, that the prophet is talking about. These are the words of Ray Ortland. He says, Isaiah envisions a lone messenger running to the city of God with the good news. Imagine a, a messenger running down this path carrying a scroll that's been sealed, this message, this good news. And he's welcomed by the watchman on the city wall. The watchman sees him running out. He runs down. He's eager to find out what he's coming with. They open the doors of the city to welcome him in. And when they receive this news, the city bursts into song, drawing the nations into the spreading circle of joy. As far as the ends of the earth, this joy is spreading out from this message that this messenger is carrying in to the city of God. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Isn't that, isn't that so beautiful? Worldwide rejoicing. But how do we get there? How do we get there and at what cost? Even Isaiah admits that God's redemption plan will surprise some people. I mean, Isaiah 53, 1 says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The assumption here is, is not many. Yes, Jesus is lifted up on a cross. And Jesus being arrested and executed, that takes real faith to believe, doesn't it? So let's take a look ourselves. Let's dig in here. And as we look at the cross together, as we, as we look at this image, I think the problem that I have with this cross right here is that it's, it's too clean. It's too pristine. It looks nice. It's not what the cross is. I want us to, to, to acknowledge at least two things from this passage, from this story that we all know and we all love. The first is, is that Jesus' death looks like failure. I think we need to acknowledge that Jesus' death looks like failure. I mean, let's be rational. We're all free thinkers here. By human estimations, the sight of a crucified man doesn't sound like good news. Jesus nailed to a tree is humane, inhumane to us. It's inhumane, but Jesus gets no sympathy. No one gives Jesus sympathy here. Just listen to some of the language Isaiah uses. He says, there were many who were appalled at him. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Those are the words that Isaiah uses. And I know what that makes you think of. I know that makes you think of Jesus mocked and jeered. It makes you think of Jesus bullied and beaten. I mean, Isaiah, Isaiah 27, 30, 31 seems to, to confirm that for us. 
The guards spat on him. They took the staff and they kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus has lost even the freedom to to clothe himself. A man held in contempt. But if we only ever look at it like that, if it it limits the scope to a few bad apples and it downplays what Isaiah is, is actually saying here. These are just the guards. It's way more than that. This is a whole generation. A whole generation looked at Jesus with contempt. What do we make of that? What do we do with that? Well, let's go back to Isaiah 53.1. And in verse 1, Isaiah is drawing our attention to the arm of the Lord. And that means God's at work. I mean, we've heard what the outcome will be, right? This beautiful picture. But for those of you who are wondering, how does he, how does he do it? The work of the Lord's mighty arm is his big reveal. This is, he's about to show us. Isaiah 52 leads to Isaiah 53. And we're about to hear and see what all the trumpets and fanfare are about. What all, why the city is singing and rejoicing. Why the nations are coming into this circle of joy. But here's the problem with us. God can literally tell us what he's going to do. And if it doesn't fit how we think things should go, if it doesn't cohere with our rational expectations, then we probably won't believe him. Meaning we expect God's mighty arm to look impressive, but it doesn't. It looks more depressing. It's much closer to, to, Isaiah 53.3 says in, in the New Living Translation, it puts it this way, it says, he was despised and we did not care. That's how bad it was. And to make matters worse, not only does it appear that the servant has nothing to offer us, but he seems overwhelmed by his own problems. You want me to look to Jesus? He looks like he needs my help. Hanging on the cross. What's he supposed to do for me? Jesus being despised and rejected isn't simply communicating hatred or mockery, though Jesus was hated and mocked. What it's ultimately communicating is humiliation. On the cross, Jesus was humiliated. This is what losers look like. And we are willful bystanders because what we're witnessing leads us to believe that maybe, maybe Jesus didn't make a difference after all. This isn't Rome showing an an, an iron fist. This is a whole generation standing around watching an innocent man go. And no one protests. No one, no one bats an eye. From a social standpoint, the, the, the man of sorrows takes on the status of the marginalized. He's an inconvenience to society. Someone who's more burdened than impressive. So in a, someone who has so obviously incurred this guilt upon himself. He looks guilty. In ancient times, maybe this would sound like, like bringing in a leper to sick people and saying, Here, touch him, be healed. You might jeer yourself. Are you joking? When we turn to Matthew's account, I find it interesting that, that Matthew's gospel draws our attention to the people's response to Jesus on the cross. What did, what did they really think? What did they really say? 
What was, what was their response to what they were witnessing? In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. And the people in the crowd, it's, it's like they can't even make out what, what he's saying. They, they can't quite, quite hear it right. And, and some people think maybe, maybe Jesus had an accent. Maybe that's part of the reason why. They can't, they can't quite hear it. And you know when you mishear something, your, your mind tries to, to logically make sense of, of what you're hearing. But the people's reaction is not, oh, Jesus, he must be up to something here. Their reaction is more, more to the effect, the effect of, oh, that, that's cute. He's calling out the prophet Elijah, Elijah to help him. Let's watch. Because that's what makes sense to them. He looks like a man in, in need of help. And that's exactly the kind of reaction that Isaiah said people would have. This doesn't look like a savior. This looks like someone who needs help. To be held in low esteem, as Isaiah says, is to make an evaluation. And the people in Jesus' day so completely devalued Jesus that they saw him as of no gain at all. But the mistaken devaluation of the servant in verses 1 through 3 are countered by the work he did for others in verses 4 through 6 in this Isaiah 53 passage. So given everything that, that we're observing here, this failure that, that it looks like this, this cross, this cross event is, what we also need to admit is that Jesus' death is our greatest boast. It's a reversal. It's not failure. Jesus' death is becoming our greatest boast, our greatest victory. When I was in college, there was a handful of guys in my friend group who were in the business school. And some of them followed the, the stock market, you know, that, that kind of thing. Way over my head. I don't, I don't get all that stuff. Maybe you can ask Pastor Lawrence about it. And, and at some point, uh, the, the interest in, in stocks led to, to us jokingly referring to different people in our, our friend group as, as stocks. And so I remember when I started dating my wife, Sarah, my, my stock skyrocketed. Everybody's like, Eric's stock is up right now. You know, the, the, the idea is when, when good things happen, your stock is high. When, when bad things happen, your stock is low. Well, nobody was touching the stock of the suffering servant. I mean, Jesus, Jesus would be the definition of a bad investment. We're all high on ourselves. I mean, the advice that we would give ourselves is to buy. But Jesus wouldn't touch him. That's what Isaiah 53.3 would lead us to believe. It tells us that this, this man of sorrows was, was so acquainted with grief that we thought it best to look away from him. All we see is failure. But Isaiah 53.4 verse 4 tells us that our assessment could not have been more wrong. Hear these words. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Our pain, our suffering, not his. We've never seen someone so pure in our entire lives. Isaiah goes on, he says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What Isaiah is showing us is that not only were we wrong about the afflictions of Jesus, but we were way wrong about ourselves. We were the ones who merited the afflicting. It was our sin, 
Our sin held him there. But hear this. What you have seen at the cross is not a neutralized, could have been savior. What you're seeing at the cross is the unhindered strength of God's perfect love for you. This is the beauty of what Isaiah is saying. The, the, the power of God's arm is not the power to crush the enemy. It's not the power to crush the enemy. Though if we're honest with ourselves, that's exactly what we're looking for. We want Jesus to be our overpowering juggernaut. We want him to shield us from all the worst things that this life has to offer us. We want an immediate fix. We want healing. We want rescue. In reality, we're not all that different from the mocking voices shouting, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. Jesus, save yourself. Show us. But John Oswald says, the power of God's arm is not the power to crush the enemy, but the power when the enemy has crushed the servant to give back love and mercy. To give back love and mercy. You see, he absorbs the blows of our sin and comes back even stronger with his love and mercy toward us. That's what's happening at the cross. What would have attracted God to do this? Why would he do this? Yet the scriptures tell us Jesus was eager to do it. I mean, think about this. Time and time again in the gospel, Jesus is reported as having healed the sick, fed the hungry, wiped the tears of the grieved. I mean, twice Jesus is mentioned to have been filled with such emotion that he weeps. He weeps for Lazarus. He weeps for Jerusalem. What moved Jesus most deeply and compelled him most profoundly was the poor and helpless estate of others. Of others not himself. And it wasn't like he took the scenic route just to, just to pass us by and, and pour out his kindness. We were completely out of his way. There's a great chasm in the way. And yet he made it a point to come and see us, to so yoke himself with our grief that no other name was appropriate but to call him sorrows. That's what Isaiah says. Listen, you do not care about the sorrows of this world more than the man of sorrows. You don't even feel the full weight of the burden like him. But in Christ, God has shown us that he is more ready to cover the consequences of our guilt and pain than we are even to produce them. Here's what gives me comfort. Here's why the cross is becoming my greatest boast. Jesus has decided to bear my burdens to pay my debts, meaning my concerns have become his concerns. My suffering has become his suffering. My grief is not met with judgment and more burden, but when I truly come to Jesus, I feel the weight of my burden being lifted up. He takes my punishment in exchange. He gives me his peace. Jesus will not resist an exhausted soul stumbling to his feet, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. That's what the cross is saying to us. We would much prefer for Jesus, like a genie, to, to make our, all of our, our sorrows disappear, 
to function as a kind of repellent against the darkest days our world has to throw at us. But instead, Jesus offers real-to-life strength as he walks us through it. He sees us through. Jesus has himself borne the weight of our sorrows. And it's out of his perfect love that we experience the fullness of his grace and mercy toward us. Jesus does not shield himself from even an ounce of our trials, but has become so acquainted, so familiar with our afflictions that he can recite them by heart. He knows what you are walking through. He loves you so immensely. Many want to see a God who can save himself. But God shows us that he is a God who remains in the darkness because by his power, he'll bring us all into the light. And so it looks like weakness is really strength on display. And so on the cross, he stays. And so by the cross, we are saved. That's how the cruel cross becomes our greatest boast. Matthew 27, 54 says, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Surely he is. And as strange a sight as the cross may be, Jesus is inviting you to remember and to rejoice in all that he has done for you. That's what we are doing tonight. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for for all the work that you are doing in and through us. God, that this, this Good Friday, that what we're seeing, we're seeing the, 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 the wickedness of, of human sin on display. God, how could we not see ourselves up there? And yet you take our place. You deal with our sin. God, you, you are crushed in our place. God, we love you. We worship you. Thank you for taking our place, for standing in our stead, and for making us clean. And God, through your strength, you give us back love and mercy. What kindness. And what a beautiful reality you are bringing about. God, may we believe you, may we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.